Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 24 of the Making Noise podcast. My name is Adam Kanaw. I'm your host. Uh, for those of you who watch this on YouTube and have seen it before, you might be wondering why you're only hearing me and not seeing me. Well, there's a simple answer to that. Something's going on with my camera. So I decided to just record the audio introduction and release this as is because time is of the essence. In any case, today's episode is a very exciting one. My friend Erin Rogers, composer and saxophonist, uh, we've been planning on having her on for a while and it just hasn't worked out and finally we made it happen. And this conversation is incredibly exciting because we, um, we talk a lot about Erin's recent album titled 2000 Miles. She recorded this album entirely with entirely improvised works. And throughout the conversation, she talks a lot about her process for improvisation, her process for recording, uh, traveling from where she lives in New York City, all the way back to Alberta, Canada, her home, her hometown, where she recorded in, in her uh, family's basement. Um, she talks about her, her the way she views the music that she writes and how she thinks about it because on this album and the rest a lot of the other music she writes it's very centered on ex what you call extended techniques right sound based techniques like multiphonics air sounds uh microtones are sometimes thrown in there and stuff and erin describes it in a way where she says something like those techniques are now the world meaning the world that the music exists in anything outside of that that is usually of a conventional traditional sense of what music is like a melodic line becomes a feature and i think that's a really interesting way to think about that it's it's a lot of how i think about my music too in any case uh it's so insightful to listen to her um behind the curtain explanation of of everything and then even go to the listen to the album which you can find on bandcamp and you can purchase uh digital form or cd so um in any case a few other things i want to mention before we get to the episode uh some events aaron has coming up december 2nd new thread quartet is performing uh for maryland shrewd's 75th birthday celebration december 11th pope bama is performing works by themselves and rick burkhart december 15th hypercube is performing works by new york women composers and uh either december 16th or 17th it'll be put in the description below pianist kathy sapobi will be premiering one of aaron's works on barge music which is a boat that goes around uh, i think manhattan um and all these ensembles by the way new thread popama and hypercube uh, as well as thing and why i didn't mention that one these are ensembles that aaron is a part of so that is just to give you an idea of the um the multifaceted varied aspects of the career that she leads it's incredibly inspirational and i always admired her for that because i i have trouble with balancing even you know days when i work out and composing and everything else so in any case without any further delay here is aaron Rodgers. let's go make some noise my name is adam canal and i am a collaborative composer join me in the search for a career in classical music this is the Making Noise podcast. Yeah, I, I, I know driving driving through the city and stuff like that, that's no joke. 
especially now everybody bought cars during the pandemic um I was oh really yeah yesterday i read an article about how gotham well it's a gothamist article it basically said that subway ridership is still way down and you can see it on the roads i mean you just see everyone's got cars i mean i'm driving a car uh to a rehearsal studio later because it's i mean it'll be a tenth of the time but also it's uh i mean we got used to doing that during the pandemic because uh subway or mass transit just it, we we didn't know how safe it was for a long period of time so that yeah. makes a lot of sense that is something that never crossed my mind <laughs> wow you're, you're in chicago right yeah but i've always driven and always had a car yeah. So I, I've never, um, and even like what I do around Chicago, it doesn't necessitate me having to take public transportation. Yeah. So um, that's interesting. Wow. So you you have a car now. Yeah, I do. And uh, so my partner, Dennis Sullivan, and I, we both, uh, we moved um, back and forth a lot during the pandemic. He had a, a, a place upstate that he was renting in order to have, he's a percussionist, so needed a large space. Uh, mm. And a friend up there had a space that he could store everything and actually, you know, hit the drums, um, which is really hard to do in a New York apartment. Uh, we isolated in my apartment for the first four months of the pandemic. And, you know, you can just, you can hear your neighbors working from home and you know, the idea of, of hitting a snare drum really loud or, or blasting multiphonics just kind of, uh, kind of um, left the table for a while. So we, we went upstate and worked there, did a lot of videoing, um, a lot of recording up there. And then, uh, as a result, needed a car. So, yeah, we, I now have a car that I drive around here too. Um, but like I say, it's it's. I mean, <laughs> the biggest issue right now is finding parking. Even oh yeah, where I live, right? it's it's really changed. Uh, so, and it's not ideal. I mean, mass transit is really the most economic way to get around. It's the best. It's well, it's you know the most environmentally friendly way. Um, so I hope that I hope that you know eventually. We can get rid of the car, you know, go back to the way I lived here 15 years without a car. So oh. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure we can get back to that point. I imagine so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, things are definitely, um, uh, there's a, a swing back to normal in certain ways, you know, like, uh, here in Chicago, there are restaurants last year that during the winter restaurants had i imagine new york city might have been similar had um outdoor seating with tents and the heaters and stuff mm -hmm. and they're still doing that um so i kind of wonder if that's going to sort of be like a new thing for restaurants to maintain their outdoor like you know maintain business during the colder seasons yeah i read an article recently i don't know if it was times or not but um there is a debate as to whether or not to make those outdoor spaces permanent uh, mm -hmm. for restaurants i mean but that, you know, it, I mean, there's, there's effects from that, right? There's less room on the street now um, mm -hmm. uh, for parking for more cars. So I mean, there's much more log jam. Uh, and there's, you know, there, there's less room to walk on some on a lot of the sidewalks too, yeah. or run or whatever, you know, for pedestrian use. So but that's, uh, yeah, that's a whole other issue, which I, I know nothing about. So <laughs> right. Yeah, it's always interesting to think about that stuff, like the trade offs that come along with something new that is is beneficial in one way but then it's like well these things are being compromised mm -hmm. you know yeah. a lot of times you don't see those effects until way later um and so you know you, you change a, a traffic path um you make this road you, you can't make a left turn on this road well all of a sudden it affects the rate of 
asthma on, on this uh, side street where there are residences because all the traffic eventually goes to that other street. And, you know, it's just, it's like, you don't see that for years and who does those studies? Just more studies we don't do than studies we do. So yeah, I understand that. I have a friend who uh, is a, is an urban planner and talks a lot about those types of things that they deal with, um, you know, when they're trying to create new traffic patterns. So yeah, fascinating world. <laughs> It's funny because it, it literally makes me think about composing where uh, I've run into this a bunch of times where I'm working with a performer or something and you'll try to do a layering of techniques, but like sort say, for example, like I'll play this multiphonic, but then with a little bit of vibrato and then introduce all this air and then start trilling with this finger. And then by the point you're layering it so much that it like cancels out <laughs> the initial thing, you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I understand. Um, it becomes its own creature, right? It's a different, <laughs> a lot of times, you know, the, its own creature doesn't sound like much at the end. But yeah, I, I do understand what you mean. It's it's like, how many how many things can you do at once to one thing and still have it retain that, that identity? So mm. yeah, yeah. But it's good to try it. Then you know it, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that's actually some of the stuff I think is really interesting, too, is is like starting with this, okay, do this, start with this thing, but then let's go into, you know, implementing all this other stuff. If you flutter tongue at the top, what then happens to the sound, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and, uh, and you know, it, it changes so much, I can barely keep track of it, and I play the instrument, so like saxophone specific um, world, I, you know, I, you don't know until you really try uh -huh. all the things out yourself, um, that, you know, that it works. And then there's the question of, can you do it on command every time immediately? And can you do it at the dynamic that's needed? Like there's, um, I, I'm constantly like ripping through multiphonics, like, whoa, that does that. That's right. Okay. That does that if I do this. Okay. Right. Um, and then in, I go and reproach it again a month later. Oh, I thought that did that. Well, I guess it doesn't do that. And maybe I've changed my read or something. <laughs> like it's, mm. it's like, everything is very temperamental. So yeah, I, I don't know. I think uh, like lately what I've been doing is, is trying to write for the most stable ideas possible. The things that I can always, you know, guarantee will happen or, or, or will work. Right. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then calculate where you're going to place your risk in your piece. Maybe it's somewhere else. Oh, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense too, especially if um, it's something that you want other people to perform later and stuff, and um, or even just yourself, you know, like to to maintain the uh, character of the piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a real challenge, especially in this world of you know, just sort of subjective techniques. Um, every every variable is different for everybody. Um, and, you know, we are walking very like worlds of variables ourselves. So how I blow my setup, the things I, you know, the, the, the way I, you know, approach the saxophone, my embouchure, you know, it, it's all, that means that maybe on that day I can hit that the way I want to hit it. But does that mean anybody else is going to <laughs> in that same way? Um, and is that the goal, right? Um, so a lot of times when working with players, it's just best to, you know, start the workshop process early and figure out the things that they like to do, the things that they, you know, are, prefer to do and feel comfortable doing. Um, you know, and that's not even to get into pedagogy. Everyone's had a different sort of upbringing on how how to do certain techniques or what techniques to even, you know, try. 
to execute. So there's there's that whole world too. So I, you know, when composing for others, it's best to go to them first. Mm. That's so true. That's so true. I mean, because I've I've definitely experienced that before, and and you know, um, the techniques of saxophone playing book by Marcus Weiss is like, you know, that's the multiphonic, you know, that's the go to for multiphonics and stuff, and. Uh, um, but there's so many times where it's like, I'll, like, I'll have a piece that one saxophonist plays and then another saxophonist plays and they're like, this is multiphonic. It's just, it doesn't work on my horn or something like that. And that, that's just, you know, uh, yeah, to, to your point, um, it's pretty crazy. I mean, it makes sense. Obviously, like you said, there's all these variables. I'm yeah. curious, um, with, well, let's, let's talk about your album that you just released sure because this is like this is like this conversation is making me think a lot about that um <laughs> but you have a, your album 2000 miles which is fucking sick <laughs> <laughs> thanks adam <laughs> absolutely um the opening track what's the other one? angel face is that one yeah angel face is the no mouthpiece track that okay i was gonna ask about that <laughs> um and then the the last one uh i can't remember it's like 18 minutes long right yeah, New Moon. New Moon. Yeah. Oh my God, uh, those pieces of mine. I was like, after the, I heard that, I was like, "Yep, that that's crazy." I'm gonna, <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about that one. Um, sure. Yeah. But um, yeah, this whole conversation about like layering techniques and stuff like that, like in in that album, on all, on a lot of the tracks at least. But like, it seems like you're you're doing just that is like taking certain sounds and manipulating it in certain ways. Am I accurate in saying that? Like, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. It's sort of, I mean, the idea is to create uh, narrative pieces out of uh, out of these extended techniques, right? Which, all, you know, at least in my early years playing, uh, were used in, not, I wouldn't say a novel way, but were used as these, these moments of stepping outside of a realm. Whereas in 2000 Miles, they are central to that realm. They are, they are the house, right? Like, it, this is, it's built on these sounds and these sounds are i mean justifiably the saxophone you know they're not they aren't twisting the saxophone to play in a different way than it should they are the saxophone and so um if you know if i exit at one point and play you know a very beautiful melody um that becomes sort of the outer uh the outside um extended vocab of any any of these pieces just and i and i felt like um it's not only my first instinct when I'm playing, it's just it, it, like, because it's a sound world. A lot of these techniques just uh, open up to sound worlds that I feel I have, um, I feel I have a lot of agency within. Um, and a lot of, uh, I find new things in them all the time because they aren't um, necessarily as stable as, you know, the, the tune notes on the, on the saxophone um, as we've learned them growing up or approaching the instrument to begin with. So for me, it's, it's, uh, it, um, also, uh, it also includes that whole world of, of experimentalism. I like, okay, if I do this double trill on this key, I get a uh, microtone and I'm also getting this kind of overtone in a strange way that I haven't heard before, but let's dig into it a little bit more. So, um, as an album that, uh, it, it tries to remember everything that's been done throughout a work and bring it back. It tries to learn the horn as you go. And each track tries to do that, um, sort of starting from a different starting place right so the very first track uh, new moon plays a lot with uh, microtonality and um, I think it starts on like an F quarter flat or no no that's the second 
uh, sorry, not New Moon, that's Home, Home, which there are two home tracks, there's Home 1 and Home 2, and both of them play on, I think one's on like um like an A quarter flat, the other's on an F quarter flat or something. Anyway, I um I start at those points and uh, and just build and kind of move up microtonally, um, so it has this sense of like pitch resolving too, um, not quite in a leading tone kind of way, but in a way that you know it it, it fits within the narrative that's been created thus far. So that those bo both work similarly, and then you know have their excursions, have their sort of B formal B sections, um, and then return home. Um, and so that's one example. Uh, Angel Face is a one, like I said, with the with seller mouthpiece where, uh, you know, you, you set the tone immediately. This is, this is the vocabulary of this piece and where it uh, departs and returns to it, uh, take the listener in a, in a different direction. And it's, um, it's easy to do that on an audio album where you're not watching a saxophonist a lot of times when you're watching a player you know you're, you're thinking of all the things they're doing as opposed to just kind of hearing the sounds and, and imagining the sounds you know as, as you know um as themselves and part of uh part of a statement right so i mean it could be angel face could be coming from any possible um vessel right uh, it's just it's more concentrated on what the sound is doing and what the message is that's being you know, put across how it's communicating, as opposed to it being like, uh, check out the air air sounds I can make on the saxophone, right? Yeah. Um, and then uh, uh, Township Road 494 is the sort of exploration into harmonics and playing with very, very unstable harmonics at the top of, um, sort of the top of the uh, harmonic structure that I'm able to get on the saxophone, on the tenor sax. So. I'm fingering very, very low fingerings, but playing within that very, very fragile space. And that there not only has a sort of constant quality of being part of the spectrum um, that relates to that sort of low pedal that keeps coming in, but also those higher partials, uh, they have their, um, like I said, their fragility, which creates this sort of experimental and exciting um, narrative. Like, will it, will it be able to Result to that is, you know, is she able to get that note that feels like it's the right note to happen right now? Um, is that going to squeak through? And so I, I, um, I liked playing in that space too, which is kind of antithetical to the space, you know, that I, um, a lot of the uh, instrumental repertoire I learned growing up, where it's like you learn to execute this and then you execute it 100% of the time if you can, and that's the goal. This is the opposite of that. It's, uh, it's exploring in a space, and sometimes the most interesting moments are when the uh, the note is not achieved, or it's barely achieved, or it, you know it, it contains that sort of humanism, that fragility, and and so that's more that's more or less the aesthetic of the record. It's um, it's playing with a lot of different things and a lot of different levels, but mostly um, mostly it's what I was interested in playing at that time. Um, and I can also talk about a little uh, about the recording process, which um, was during the pandemic when I was practicing a lot of these techniques and a lot of them are quite quiet. Um, you know, the angel face is loud, but it's very hot mic'd. Um, in a room, it's, it's quiet without the amplification. And those are the types of sounds I was able to make in that first year of the lockdown. Um, like I said, with neighbors right here. Um, so I got used to making interesting um, small sounds and amplifying them and to create um, worlds where it's sort of like a magnifying glass looking in on this very, very soft but busy world and then uh, blowing it up to sort of feel larger than life.
I'm I'm totally gonna go listen to the to the album again after this conversation <laughs> now because I'm uh that's that's so interesting how you use the pandemic maybe unconsciously but like as a way to um or I don't say use the pandemic but like because of the situation you were forced to have to play quietly right mm-hmm. and then that all that put you in this creative headspace to be like well let me mess with these sounds and see what I can kind of come up with and like what that can do uh oh that's that's so. Like, I love how that's just so clever. I love how, I love how you, you like, you dug into that and then went with it. Um, <laughs> the, you mentioned, yeah, the recording process. I was actually going to ask you about that. Like how you, like the program notes for your album is so interesting. And, uh, and so I, I, I wanted to ask a little bit about that. And then could you kind of, yeah, could you talk a little bit about the program notes? Like, cause yeah. you traveled to your hometown, yeah. right? And then. Yeah, I traveled back. Uh, so I left when I was 18, I left home to go to college. And then from there, um, through a series of moves, ended up in New York City in 2005, which I've lived here now for 16 years. And um, yeah, part of me has always wanted to go back to my home in Western Canada um, and spend some significant time there. And the, the pandemic, when all gigs got canceled, for me at least, I it felt like you know, once travel was at a point in which it was safe and I felt I could, I could commit to uh, the quarantine periods and commit to, you know, sort of the regulations on both on the side of both governments in order to do it safely. I went back home and um, uh, to my childhood home where my parents are and spent, um, I guess the first time I went back was seven weeks, which was longer than I've ever spent since I was 18. And it was a really, um, it was a really meaningful, important time. Um, but to get to that, to be able to spend time with my parents, I had to quarantine um, in a basement suite by myself for two weeks. And this uh, this meant, you know, just um, by myself all day, I knew I was going to want projects. So I brought, um, I got a new set of a uh, new stereo pair, a nice um, Audio-Technica 4041 stereo pair, which was really, you know, the the one thing I needed in addition to my uh, 4050, which is the mic that I mainly use for recording. And um, and then I also fed in like a 57 into the bell of the tenor for one of the tracks. But besides that, those are the four tracks I had. I used a basic interface and just recorded myself. And I did this for, you know, day after day after day until I finally felt like I had the shred of an idea. And then I would uh, put commit to that idea and, you know, work on that and get that piece down. Um, so the second time I went back to Canada again, I, I recorded, and this was in the winter, it was a winter solstice. I was in the basement again, and the days were very, very short. And I got used to just kind of seeing the moon out the window, and also you could only, it was very cold, so you couldn't only go out for like a half an hour before you pretty much freeze. But the moon was out a lot, and so I got the idea of, you know, sort of creating pieces that were based around the moon. Um, and on the Canadian prairies, you see the moon so brightly in the sky, whether it's, you know, a half moon waning, waxing, or, you know, the full moon. And um, it was just such a large presence. And I started thinking a lot about how how this time was, solitary time was affecting me and how um, and this was affecting the music I was making. And, you know, the, I mean, there are things in, in this album that's, that are very personal. I mean, it's it's a lot of saxophone extended techniques, but it's also like, it feels to me like a, like a very um, sensitive and emotional album in a lot of ways. So when I listen to these tracks, it's, you know, I get kind of, kind of reminiscent of that time and, and uh, get, um, you know, very, um, 
like I'm very close to that world and to that time that I spent. Um, yeah, so um, 2,000 Miles ended up being the title, which I, um, I figured was the distance across the moon, but also the distance between New York City and this childhood home. Huh. So I ended up calling it 2,000 Miles. That's, that's so cool. It's, it's 2,000 Miles to the Earth, from the Earth to the moon? No, but, but it's across <laughs> the moon, and I was like, oh, I'll take it. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, that's cool, though. I mean, it's, 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 I love how you can make that connection. Um, that's, that's so interesting. I could imagine, actually, I, I, I kind of have a good sense of it, but I've never been, I've never been as far west as Alberta. So, like, I, don't, I have no idea what the sky or any of that is like, but I could only imagine being in New York City like all of your time and then spending like a solid amount of time in, in is Alberta, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and, and like the stars and stuff is like, how is, what, what, how quickly did that just sort of start sinking in for you? Like, yeah, it's just the sky is, is, um, it's such a huge part of that, um, of that area. I mean, it's, um, they're weather people, right? It's, it's a crop growing. It's the Eastern point of, Alberta, right? We're right on the border with Saskatchewan. I was actually born in Saskatchewan and, um, and grew up there a little as well before we moved to Alberta, but it's prairie land. And, um, they, uh, Joni Mitchell says that they are sky oriented people. So you're always watching for weather. You're looking for rain. You're hoping for rain, especially now. Um, and yeah, it's just like an overwhelming part of, of life there. Uh -huh. It's like, <laughs> I remember a joke I, we used to tell it was like you could watch your dog run away for five days and <laughs> it's just a matter of just there being a flat land and a big sky and the horizon just it's such a huge part so I would get up in the mornings my dad gets up very early he gets up at four or five a.m and I think it comes from that just growing up on the farm but he'll get up and um and so I would get up with him and we'd just watch the sunrise every morning. And so I kind of got, you know, interested in, you know, filming the sunrise, kind of watching this journey of the, of the sun as it changed colors, as it started, you know, with the cloud cover being very, very neon pink and then moving into, you know, more of a yellow with blue background. But, um, but yeah, you're watching the sky all day. Uh, so, and they live on, on an acreage in the country. So it's, you know, there's not a lot of, buildings around or anything like that it's pretty much what you're doing <laughs> right yeah it's it, it like makes me think about bowling green a little bit you know <laughs> yeah it's similar right i remember going to bowling green for the first time wow this is i mean and at that point um they weren't growing as much corn at least the the uh in canada where i grew up as they are now but <laughs> i remember the corn being the one thing that this is so similar to where i grew up except look at all this corn <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's so funny. It's it's uh that's cool though that that I mean it was a pretty like straightforward uh what you call it like transition or something you know I mean I I don't know some people I I, I met people in Bowling Green who um wouldn't didn't like wouldn't want to go to New York City or something because they were so used to the area you know growing up in like just flatlands and stuff yeah so um so like like for you going from uh alberta saskatchewan area and then to bowling green you know it's like oh this is this is familiar <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i well it, i did go to um to u of a university of alberta in edmonton for my undergrad which is a city and okay. you know it's also a city with 
I think probably one of the most um, or one of the largest areas of parkland inside of it. So there is quite a bit of nature and park within the city. It's it's really beautiful, especially around the river. But it is uh, it's a city um, larger than Bowling Green. Um, probably it's the second largest city in Alberta. So um, there was that aspect of being used to city life, being able to drive around. But I always uh, I knew I, I had had dreams of driving into a city that was much bigger than Edmonton. Growing up, I had that that sort of fascination. And I, for some reason, I had this recurring dream a lot um, when I was an undergrad. But I always thought it was Philadelphia that I was driving into. <laughs> Maybe it turned out to be New York. I don't know. But I <laughs> definitely will never forget the first time I drove into New York City. And that was, I was a student in Bowling Green. It was my second year. It's 2000, no, 2003, yeah. And I went. I came to New York City with Greg Cornelius, who was a saxophonist and composer at Bowling Green, and he and I were driving in uh, his Dodge Caravan. And I think we were listening to like music for AC musicians or something like that, and it was raining. And I remember seeing the city lights of New York and just being overwhelmed with this idea of I, I need to be here. So that was a that was a very pivotal moment. We ended up doing a lot of really really fun activities in that trip. Uh, we met up with Adam Mirza. A, a, former um, Bowling Green alum, uh, composition alum, who was living in New York already and who was concertizing and had met all these really fantastic musicians here and um, was putting on concerts all over and hired this really amazing flute player to play Greg's piece. And um, it was a duo for flute and saxophone, so I got to play too. And Greg was running electronics and we were in some, some person's garage in Brooklyn. And uh, the flute player turned out to be Claire Chase, who at the time had just kind of started this um, international contemporary ensemble, which was a very small, you know, grassroots kind of thing at the time. So, um, but that, like, being around all the musicians here, really, um, it was magnetic at the time um, for me. And so besides just that entry, that first trip, there was, like, there was just the, the energy around new music and the things that we were at the time completely obsessed with. Wow, that's a cool story. Yeah. Holy crap. Wow. <laughs> it's interesting to hear. I mean, because yeah, ice, yeah, they started like the early 2000s, right? In that time. Um, and it's it's interesting to hear you talk about like these these experiences you had, like watching the sunrise with your dad, seeing the moon every night, and then like going in the first experience in the city and stuff like that. Cause it like it it almost sounds a little bit like your process for um composing 2000, uh, 2000 miles, how like you, you said you were sitting in your apartment and you're like, well, I have to be quiet. So I'm gonna try these quiet sounds. And then I'm just gonna sit and mess with these sounds for a long time. And then you record it and then you're like, all right, well, let's let's kind of go through it again. And, and like, it, it sounds like you you like, like to soak things in, <laughs> you know, and then and then and then sort of like, I don't know, you like you're kind of getting acquainted with it in a way. Yeah, yeah, That's, the sounds, I mean, as any saxophonist knows, I mean, you just, uh, when you start playing, you enter a world and that world is, I mean, you can be anywhere. You know, close your eyes and you're playing and it's, I mean, whatever's going through your head, you you know, you can depart any situation pretty much in that moment. At least uh -huh. I found that to be a real, um, a real place of departure. So, you know, if, if you're in a small apartment, you can't leave, um, you can, you know, you have an outlet or you can make one for yourself just by like falling into a sound world and just visualizing a place outside of your own, you know, outside of your own physical environment.
Mm-hmm. That's that's really important. I think I did something similar. Like there was a point during the quarantine where I was, I I, I needed to be more productive. So I, I gave myself like a seven day composing challenge, and I just like wrote music. I don't remember exactly how I did it, but like it was oh I, I was write seven minutes of music in seven days. So mm-hmm. like so I was like, you know, it wasn't it was it was really just something to get me kickstarted. You know, like <laughs> that's great. What did you write for? I wrote for oboe. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, my girlfriend who I live with plays the oboe. And so I was just like, oh, I'll just, I'll write a piece for her. And she always says, when are you going to write a piece for me? <laughs> so, uh, so like, well, this is as good a time as any, um, which I'm still like tweaking that piece too. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it was like June of 2020 or something like that, or April of 2020. But, um, but yeah, I mean like writing a piece in a week is like, that doesn't normally happen. So it, you would you would assume it would take more time to keep editing it, I guess, you know? Mm. Yeah, everyone's different, right? It's sometimes, and I, I know there's projects that take me months and months, and then there's projects that just seem to happen so quickly. Mm-hmm. It just depends on the, you know, the idea comes, and next thing you know. And I, you know, I'm definitely um, still always learning my own process because um, it's constantly changing, but, um, but yeah, it seems to be like a long, long, long point, which then I start and then things fly. Once mm-hmm. once you get started or past that, um, that sort of threshold, that wall, once you pass that wall, it's like, all right, time for two all-nighters. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> you know? And then like 48 hours later, you emerge, you're like not, not looking too humanly healthy, but with something that you're very proud of um or at least have you know put a lot into yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's not a lot of pride but you did it <laughs> yeah <laughs> it depends right i mean yeah, yeah. Every, every piece is different yeah Th- that's very true um yeah the the album would you when you wrote that was that something where you conceived it, you were thinking about it like piece by piece and then and then compiled it? Or was it like the the you see the album as the work sort of thing? Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, no, I I didn't. I was just playing with different ideas and I wanted to fully flesh out all of those ideas that I was playing with. And I had no concept of how long it would be or how much material I would end up creating that I really liked. So mm. at the beginning, it was like, oh, let's let's play today we're playing and there's no um expectation or or you know preconceived idea of what what this has to be i didn't know that eventually i was going to put an album out um because that was part of the whole uh the whole um idea of what i was going to do in these two weeks and i knew a second album had to come and i i was actually late on getting the masters to the label and all this so i knew i was going to do an album but i didn't want to you know create too much um just preconceived um, expectations or limitations even uh, about the process. So I went in each day with a different idea, played with that idea for a while. And I, there were ideas that I completely scrapped that just I thought were going to be great and just didn't go anywhere. Mm. So I didn't use any of that material. And I didn't, um, a lot of times those ideas themselves, um, as I was playing with them, you know, moved into new territory where there was a really interesting idea. So then I adopted new ideas. So that... Um, that became apparent the, the like home one and home two were the first two tracks I started with. And that, I, that technique, um, that 
began the process ended up being really interesting. But I think through that process, I learned about um, the techniques I wanted to use during Township Road, which I had no idea I was going to do a piece um, based on this fragile harmonics. It's just that at some point um, in playing, I landed on a harmonic resolution that really hit me. It's like, well, let's see where we can go with that. And then <laughs> that became its own piece. And yeah, and then eventually, I mean, I had way too much material. I mean, the album itself is over 60 minutes and I remember feeling a little bit strange about it, 18 minute track at the end, where it's just, I just kept going with this one multiphonic again and again and again and again. And it just felt like, to me, it didn't get old. <laughs> so I just kept kept playing with it and kept trying new things. Um, and the track ended up being 18, an 18 minute track that I guess didn't have to be on the album, but it felt right. Um, probably, I guess I could have cut one piece, but I talked to uh, Kevin Riley, who produced it with Relative Pitch, and he was like, no, it's great. Don't cut anything. And it does fit on a CD. <laughs> so it, it does it does come in under 70 minutes, so we're, we're okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I think the same thing with the, with the last track. Like, listening to that, I don't ever reach a point where I'm like, all right, let's go into something different now. You know, like, there's never any sort of frustration or like uh it like the interest is maintained honestly you know um there's something repetitive about that particular multiphonic it just lends itself to like to have this like extreme durational repetition quality that you know and every once in a while it does kind of resolve i was thinking <laughs> that the new world actually that's what i was thinking of the sort of new world symphony first two chords um where I found the multiphonic that it does resolve to and that that it's always pushing to that point mm -hmm. harmonically um and the whole all of the repetition and all of the uh, decoration and the and the different um sort of tangents that the piece goes to always bring it back to that multiphonic that then eventually resolves and it's amazing how long we can kind of sit in that I say like metaphorically that leading tone world um and not get too anxious, <laughs> you know, I guess as long as you're distracting folks from what it is at times, it, you know, it doesn't always need to resolve immediately. Yeah, that, that, uh, that makes me think with, with playing the piece, like, so it was primarily improvised, like you didn't notate any of it or did you, no? No, I didn't notate it. Um, but I, I liked the multiphonic and I, this is, um, it's the same concept I, that I used with, um, Beacon, which is the first track on Don Treader, the album from two years prior. It's, um, just a really, uh, robust multiphonic that has a lot of uh, sort of built in, um, potential energy. It can move, it's versatile. It moves in all directions. There's a lot of ways that it can weigh on one pitch or another within the multiphonic. Uh, there's a lot of trill possibilities within all of the fingering, um, like any, I can, I can, because it has a lot of fingers down as I play it, it, you can move a lot of them off and go to very, very interesting places. So um, that's the idea of the piece is it plays around that multiphonic uh, and tries different things, uh, tries different variations on it, and then, um, and then resolves to a second multiphonic. And those, uh, those two things I found prior to going into playing it and just played played it as long as I could, basically. <laughs> um, and that, yeah, it, it's, it's, I mean, really, you can, you can depart for a while 
once you've established something as being this firm A section or this firm thematic opener, this this thing that you know um, anyone listening will have cemented into their um, into their sensory, you can leave and then come back to that at any point in time, and it's referential. Now it's now now we're revisiting. This is familiar, and that's I guess formally how I think of a lot of this work. It's like always trying to be aware of what has been said thus far, so that you, when you go back to those areas, you understand um, the context that you've provided someone already, so that you can pick up that sentence as you continue. Um, and so I'm thinking about that as I'm playing it in real time. It's like, yes, I, if I keep coming back to this multiphonic or find the interesting ways to now resolve back to this multiphonic, um, it gets us back to A, and then we can start again. And, and that's formally how Beacon works as well. I think there's three or four different moments where it returns back to the initial multiphonic and then builds. That one's more like build a mountain, fall off, build a mountain, fall off, build a really big mountain, do something else crazy, fall off. And then, um, yeah, New Moon goes to all sorts of different kind of valleys. And then it has this secondary multiphonic that it resolves to at times. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, being so close to this material, it all makes sense in my head about, you know, what's happening, but a listener might have a totally different take on it too. So mm -hmm. it could be ambient, it could be something that's, you know, just there, but that's how I, that's how I uh, have formulated and feel it and, and listen to it. I, well, it's so cool to hear you talk about it because like, it's not unlike how any other composer would talk about their work, like even like 150 years ago. You know the whole the whole idea of like uh, tension and release, building suspense. Um, you know even the the concept of um, uh, uh, prolonging the arrival of the tonic. You know, like in a way, you're doing that, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's and that's all from just this bank of uh, you know music that I've listened to and have a familiarity with that I I want to do that. Um, the the real challenge is doing it in real time, and that's the thing that I've noticed has taken a lot of practice. Um, mm. So as a composer of notated music, it's very easy to zoom out and see these things and then have five weeks to figure out how you want it, you know, to sit on a page, right? And and how then that page translates to the, you know, the sort of the time linear um, experience of it. And that that's different because you have, it's almost just, it's just like being able to um, edit to no end your process and reflect on it the next day. And, you know, in when you're writing in real time, you have 20 minutes to say something from beginning to end. And it's a real challenge because you're also doing it at the same time that you know, you're, you're, you're physically in the action of doing it. So any mistake you make then becomes part of the piece and that's you know, better for worse. It's in there now and it, you, have to, you have to transform it into not a mistake, <laughs> right? I mean, if you do something, if you take a risk and it totally you know, doesn't work, that's now, okay, well, one's aware that that happened. So I better make that happen three more times so that it fits, right? <laughs> it's like a puzzle. And so doing it in real time is um, like an ultimate challenge. And, you know, even just keeping track sometimes of what you've said up till then is difficult, right? Uh -huh. It's like, we have a lot of practice of that, of doing that, you know, and speaking and communicating because we've been doing that all our lives, but, you know, we don't spend 24 hours a day um, or 12 hours a day, <laughs> whatever period we're awake, we don't spend all that time improvising on our instruments. So we have less practice of, you know, just understanding what we've said and how we're communicating. Uh, so gaining that uh, facility took me a few years, like 
I started improvising actually in Bowling Green a lot um, with the new music ensemble there that um, Dr. Keen ran. And I, uh, I got involved in uh, Thing and Why, which is a, a group that we started improvising together very early in 2006. And I did a lot of shows that were, you know, completely scoreless and just, you know, us playing, um, playing together and figuring sounds out. And, um, and it was always interesting to me, but it never occurred to me until, you know, a decade and a half later to do an album of improvised music. And I think it was like Kevin um, from Relative Pitch reaching out and saying, hey, do a solo saxophone album. I remember just hitting me like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> There's, you know, there was the music we recorded, the chamber music and the pieces that we, you know, got to a level of, of, of studio recording level, but never this idea of just an improvised album, which is crazy because I listened to so much of it growing up. I listened to so much. It, it almost always came from the jazz world. Mm -hmm. so, and even um, improvising saxophonists in the classical world that I knew of, I didn't know so much of their like, sort of, uh, discography or output. In the same way and so i think maybe there was that barrier um but when somebody from an experimental label came and said hey i'd like to uh you know i'd like to do an album after hearing like he heard a pope Mama show where dennis and i improvised um, a full set and he's like yeah this is interesting this is music that fits the label well and um and since then it's made so much sense it seemed there seems to be much more of a world for that uh, kind of like that, the sort of classical crossover to free improv world, than mm -hmm. I ever knew that there was. It and seems I like my own blindness, honestly. Like there have been improvising saxophonists forever, amazing, um, um, in all genres. That I just maybe you know just I didn't sort of see myself in that same um, trajectory. Yeah, yeah. Well, you you could only be exposed to so much, you know, like <laughs> before before. Uh, um... Yeah, like it makes me think about because um, this past year I started reading a lot about different tuning systems and microtonality, and I learned about Joe Monera or Man. Oh God, I, I don't know. His, I don't know how to say his last name. He's he. I don't think he's alive anymore, but um, I I could be wrong. Maybe he's alive. I don't know. Clearly, I don't know a lot about this guy, but um, he's a clarinetist in Boston who like almost ex ex he extensively uses seventy-two tone equal temperament. And he improvises in it and stuff like that. Um, I've been into microtonal music for quite a while. Never have I heard of that guy, you know? Um, and so it's like, it's always exciting when you kind of, when you're exposed to this new composer or new artist or performer or whoever, and like, and it's, it's like your, your bread and butter at that, or your, uh, you know, your meat and potatoes at that time, you know? Mm -hmm. And so you just like dig right in and you're like, oh, this is sick as hell. Holy shit. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's crazy. I mean, it's like, it, you know, when you find something out for the first time, it, remembering that this is just this is just your personal experience experience of finding this out for the first time, guaranteed that someone has done this <laughs> before. Um, and you know, it's I mean, you have to assume that someone has, and you have to assume that there's probably a generation of folks whose voices you know never made the mainstream that have like been doing this. And I'm, I know I've I've been surprised and, and found like so many artists and it's just a constant flow of artists that I find out about on a, you know, a daily, weekly basis that have been doing like their life's work has been in this genre that I thought I had never, that I'd never seen before and never realized. So I think, I think I try to approach that with the idea that yes, folks have, have definitely explored this territory already. Mm -hmm. I'm coming at it. Um, 
now for the first time myself and you know probably it's been done um not it just means that i've probably just not heard it or it you know hasn't been out there um so you, you try to avoid statements like i'm the first to blah blah or right right, right. <laughs> great technique i found <clears throat> um because maybe it's been found uh so just do what you know do what's interesting to you and try to you know create interesting music you know in your own world but um but be aware that there's you know a world of other musicians working um doing very creative interesting things and a lot of times you know have already explored those ideas in depth mm -hmm. you know the which i know as you as a composer probably we all think about that right what's new what, what are we going to do that's new it's it, it yeah totally totally i mean it's uh it's a weird sort of thing, you know, like you, cause this makes me think about conversation. Do you know, uh, Doug Bielmeyer? Mm -hmm. Uh, he, I had him on the podcast at one point and we had a similar conversation about like authenticity and voice and, you know, um, being honest with your music and stuff like that. Like kind of what we're talking about right now in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like, yeah, it's definitely something that as a, as a composer, improviser, you know, even performer, like you're always kind of tackling with, I mean, because performers, if you're playing a piece that's been played, then you're like, well, I don't want to sound like this person, too. you know, like mm -hmm. if I listen to a lot of these recordings, am I going to now sound like that guy when I play? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, and then there's a, like, a question. I mean, does this composer who's made this famous own this technique? I mean, this... Mm -hmm. You know, this sounds very minimalist. Does this belong? You know, to someone this idea belong to someone else? Are you? I mean, it's um, it's yeah, a minefield always. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's what um, that's really important to explore those ideas and to push yourself as a composer to uh, you know not only styles that interest you but beyond styles that interest you and 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 tackle new things too and not don't be afraid to. So, yeah, I yeah, it's uh, you try to just be as you know as creative while being conscientious i guess yeah that's a good way yeah i mean well it it's like what you were saying when you were recording you know i i'm gonna check the time real quick because i want to make sure yeah we're getting sometimes i've done this before sometimes i set my alarm to go off and i never actually set the alarm i just put in one hour and then i don't right, right. you know but we're good it'll go off in 13 minutes or yeah <laughs> or um, at midnight tonight <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> we'll be talking for like the next 12 hours and i even realize it and like oh wait <laughs> we forgot to stop <laughs> um what was it gonna say uh uh oh yeah your your recording process or i guess i should say your improvising process no, your recording process. Yeah, because you talked about how you had ideas that you're like, oh, this is going to be sick. I can't wait to do this one. And then it just didn't work out. Mm -hmm. And like having that um, like flexibility, not the right word. It's not flexibility, but it is flexibility. Um, I don't know, wherewithal to be able to look at it and be like, you know what? I just have to push it to the side right now. I can't use it. And I got to focus on other stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I guess wherewithal is, is a word for that. But that's that's tough and and like like what we were just talking about you know um like having a you know you're being honest with your music and your voice and like you said like trying out new things listening to different music and stuff like that um how do you like how do you get to this point i mean i don't know if you if that you know, that's kind of a big question i guess but like you know 
for me hearing that I'm like, well, I don't know if I could do that so easily <laughs> or at least on the spot where I'm like, I got to record this record. Let me toss this idea out of here. Cause it's not working, you know? Like, right. Yeah. No, it's like, I, I think it has to do with, I mean, the, the first explanation that comes to mind is age. Like I, the older I get, the less precious every little piece of material is. And that has to do with, you know, this, this, the way that um, time flows as you're older, you have this, this large backlog of, uh, of ideas that, you know, have just become less precious over time because they don't, they don't occupy such a large percentage of your invested interest, right. Um, or time up to that point. So having 20 year career, or I guess you could say that at this point, um, almost a 20 year like professional career that is, um, that has now um, seen a lot of pieces. I've written a lot of pieces that have never been premiered um, for one reason or another that are under strange like exclusivity that is just, you know, I don't know what will happen to that material. Um, there's a lot of things that have fallen through. Um, and, th and that's a smaller percentage, of course, than the ones that do see the light of day. But you start to realize like ideas are, ideas flow and they come and go. And the um, importance of those ideas at the time might seem really, really important. And then it's, you know, you, five years later, you forgot that that project even occurred and that that thing that was, you know, so important at the time, um, you know, really even happened. So I think it helps now when I'm working in a, in a momentary uh, way in a, in the middle of a project when something isn't working just to, just to have that experience and that, um, that strength to just say, no, this is, this isn't right. We just don't do it. And I've, I've noticed that with um, artists that I work with that I really respect, that they all have that same ability to, to say, no, that's not right. It doesn't really matter how big this moment is. I'm not doing it. And and that can be for various reasons. It can be for artistic reasons, um, you know, just uh, just career reasons. I mean, you have to live with yourself and you have to, um, it's becoming a bigger response and a bigger topic than <laughs> I know you originally meant with the question. but. Um, but being able to step back and not overvalue or push something when it's not at the right time or when it's not uh, right for the album or when it's not right for the project is really important. And that's how you end up creating you know, good things, maybe not as many things, you know, as a, as a sacrifice, but um, quality things that have been felt through and that you think you can do, you know, and, at the, and that th you think work at that time. And even then, I mean, Dawn Treader, when I first put Dawn Treader out, I was like I was so in my head about that album I just couldn't I couldn't tell and, and you know it's just becoming too close to a project in general not being able to hear it or see it for what it is um but I got so um because it was the first time I put out a solo album just so in my head about whether anything was working I could listen to a track and think wow nothing happens in that track and I could look at the, or listen to the track you know um, coincidentally in this later in the same day and think, wow, there's, there's a lot in there. And like that kept going back and forth. And at that point I'd realized, well, this isn't going anywhere. Just put it out and deal. <laughs> 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 Which is not a really, um, um, yeah, fluid or lovely, uh, answer to that. It's just, just put it out and see what happens. I, I, I think that's a really, um, like what's the word um like actionable thing to do though like it's necessary because uh like as artists we're like we have to take risk in order to kind of get better you know and progress and stuff so like 
just accepting what it is and putting it out there. I think I think that totally makes so much sense. I I definitely struggle with that when I finish a piece of music. Like um, I'll I'll hit the double bar line, and then um, there are things in it where I'm like, I know this could be better. It's not what I want it to be. Mm-hmm. And like sometimes I'll go back and like change things, and I'll still work with the performer and stuff. And like I, I still do that, but like then there's also other times where I'm just like, that, that's that. All right, next piece, sort of thing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but and I like what you said too about having you know 20 years in, of your career and like this backlog of things you can kind of like look back on and 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 reference or or even just forget about, you know, just because so much you're so far removed from it. Because um, I, I I sort of realized as as I as I get older and stuff like. I sort of have more and more like uh, what do you call it? Like my own policies in a way. Like this, this kind of goes more to what you were saying about like career decisions, you know, where it's like like someone who says, you know, like oh, I don't talk politics at dinner. It's just a personal policy, you know, like like that sort of thing. It's like a, it's you've experienced so many things in your life that you're like, okay, I don't have to experience that thing in this way at this time, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so I think that that was a really cool answer with, with things that I hadn't, I hadn't even thought, think about, or like, you know, it was unexpected. I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, and every situation is different and we're also different people every day and we wake up and the decisions we can make one day can be very different than this, you know, the next day. Um, even with faced with the same questions, you can have a different answer. And it's, um, you say that um, in a lot of fields, right? The idea that it's, it's about what you, do in that moment, sort of that moment to moment thinking. Um, and so an answer to whether or not to participate in a project could, you know, vary from day to day. Mm-hmm. So never work with people that are difficult to work with. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, no, actually, it's really important to work with people that are difficult um, in order to grow and to, you know, also have, you know, these um, possibly really, really interesting artistic projects come to life. And, you know, it's just, it, there's, uh, yeah, I don't, I know this, I know that my process is not a very solid process and that at any point in time I can change, um, which is a contradiction to, I, I constantly contradict myself. That's the other thing. It's very important to understand that there are two sides to everything and that, <laughs> but the most important thing is that you do something at the end of it, that you've actually put something out there that you do, or, you know, that you do, uh, take action, make actionable choices eventually. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's so true though. I contradict myself left and right all the time too. So uh, I think we're very similar in that way, Aaron. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I look at it as seeing both sides, right? <laughs> totally. No, that's true. I mean, cause I'll, I'll, I'll say something like very, very firmly too. And then I'll be like, yeah, but you know what? And then I'll like kind of think about the other side or something like that, or like other variables, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's true. That's why it's more fun to just to do to just make stuff um, than to sort of think about it too much or talk about it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> just, important, but yeah. Just start. Just start. Uh, just start. You know, moving. Literally, just start walking. Don't stand still and think about where you're gonna go. Yeah, and that's kind of a lot of what I do. It's just just do something, and then eventually things will take shape. Um, and that has a lot to do with the process too. I mean, just. just get something out there, do something. And then, you know, start, at least for me, that a lot of times, um, a lot of my pieces start from that, um, that idea of, okay, let's make some crazy sounds and let's throw them together on a DAW and 
let's see, do I like the, the balance of that? Yeah, that sounds good together. Okay, well, I'm going to transcribe that to some physical instrument and, and some vocalist or, you know, some sort of sample plus instrument combo or something like that. Oh. And that's, you know, a doing way to start as opposed to sort of this conceptual um, idea of orchestration and then a, then a notation from there and then to instrument. Gotcha. That's cool. Uh, the I know the alarm's going to go off in a second. Nope, and so okay. I figured you can chat a little more if you want to. I I um I have a few more minutes. I don't think it'll take me an hour full hour okay. to get done. To... Okay, all right. Well, I, yeah, I don't want to hold you up or anything. Um, but so what was I gonna say? Um, yeah, the <laughs> we've talked a lot about your album, and it's, and I love that. That's like it's kind of funny. Uh, this always happens where like when I correspond with you know people to be on the podcast, and we we talk about things to discuss. And then, like maybe one or two of those things get discussed, you know. <laughs> well, that's good, that, I mean, you can. This can be one of those podcasts where you have guests on multiple times, and then you have different projects each time that you kind of <sighs> focus on, and then the tangents go. I mean, I've seen that, right? That format is is kind of it's a real format. See now, now you're 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 giving me all kinds of great things to work with, <laughs> <laughs> like because uh, yeah, that's so true, and and uh, I. Yeah, and that's also not a complaint either, by the way. I'm so psyched about everything we've talked about thus far. <laughs> um, but I think I think one thing I want I want to bring up real quick is is your you have like such a varied like um, uh, roles, such varied roles that you play in your career. Like you're a composer, you have several ensembles that you're in, right? And then you you also you're um, is is thing and why considered an ensemble or is that yeah yeah okay because i i know i know you, you it's often well yeah i guess it yeah okay because I, I know you guys do a lot of projects and stuff and i wasn't sure if it was like an just uh, like a new music sort of um like a collective and whatnot yeah yeah i mean yeah. all of the players in thing and why all of the musicians are also composers so it could be you know we can kind of live a little in the collective world um mm. <laughs> a composer collective uh you know, where we write for each other. Um, but there's, I mean, and everybody's, everybody in that group wears multiple hats. So it just crosses us over into some really interesting uh, project areas. Um, the thing that Thing Why is actually probably most well known for, does most, um, at least the thing we get asked to talk about most is the collaborative composition aspect of the group, where mm. <clears throat> like being in a room with people and writing something together. Um, I mean, that's, like thing of I, I was saying how much improvising we used to do. I mean that really though we composed together and we composed just using all sorts of different material, you know, text material, video material. We bring in um, game pieces for each other to play. We improvise. We you know, write up straight up notes and learn them um, and play chamber music together. So it, it crosses all of that. Um, <clears throat> we also work with lots of folks in the theater world, the opera world, um, a lot and. Um, folks in, uh, in the poetry world, right? And there, there's just a lot of different areas that Thing and Why uh, works in and, and has um, sort of uh, cross-pollinated with. So um, so that group itself doesn't always come off as like a, you know, kind of in the box chamber ensemble. Mm -hmm. Not that any chamber ensemble is really in the box anyway, but um, <clears throat> I think, uh, I think um, yeah, working working with that group, which is uh, very different than working with uh, New Thread Quartet, um, the folks are great, great to work with, 
uh, projects are different, so it just means that we focus on different things. Uh, but all of, all of that, uh, Hypercube, the, my group with um, uh, Andrea Lodge, Jay Source, and Chris Graham, um, that quartet, uh, as a mixed quartet, is also a fabulous place to just work and learn. And um, Popama, of course, the experimental aspect of Popama, all of that feeds my creative mind and um, my creative juices so that it just always feels like I'm full of ideas. So I think that that's probably the number one driver for a composition career. Um, time is, again, the only thing that sort of you have to manage in a way where I can still find enough time to write. Um, but the ideas certainly flow because of all of the scenarios I constantly find myself in as a, as a player and rehearser and a collaborative composer and improviser and, you know, just all of the collective heads in the room anywhere I go just feed, feed my creative, like my, not only my, um, the material that I'm working with, but my will to compose. That's so awesome. I, I love, I love how you have all these different ways to kind of harness your creative energy and these different, you know, people to work with and stuff like that's fantastic. Yeah. And I, it really became obvious during the pandemic because <clears throat> I mean, Hypercube kept up a pretty busy schedule, but at certain points and, um, and thinking why I was doing a lot of uh, virtual stuff online, but I wasn't in a room with a lot of my friends and my, I stopped writing as much compositionally. I wrote a few pieces like notes on the page type pieces, but I found it was harder to write, even though I had larger sort of areas of time to work with. Um, and <clears throat> that says something when things are really bustling, when there are a lot of rehearsals happening and a lot of workshops and I'm meeting with a lot of different composers as part of these groups and we're involved in a lot of different projects. Those are the times in which I end up doing the most composing, strangely enough. And it, you know, it gets shoved into corners and happens really late in, into the night um, or early morning. And that's uh, probably because there's just, there's so much activity and so much going on. That's something else that um, I, I admire about you that I don't have, which is, the ability to, because one one time we met, well, that one time we met in New York and we had dinner, right? Mm -hmm. And um, you had, I remember you had your backpack with you and I was asking you about your backpack and everything. And you, and you mentioned that like, whenever you get a moment, you know, to compose, you got to break your stuff out and be ready to kind of, you know, <laughs> I don't have that. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's something that I admire so much about you is like your, your ability to kind of just do that. Um, and, and it's, it's interesting to kind of hear about this process with all these ensembles and how, when you work with them and like, you know, where, where your creative energy gets harnessed and how you, how that informs your composing and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, in New York, you have to be able to, I mean, you're sitting on the subway a lot. You're sitting, I mean, I'm sitting in airports a lot. You're sitting, you're sitting somewhere waiting for something to happen. Oftentimes not necessarily driving. Um, so it just, uh, yeah, it, it there ends up being places where mm -hmm. I'd rather spend that energy trying to finish this thing that's probably late. Right, right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Once again, almost out of necessity, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, I, um, but I do envy composers that have that daily practice that, you know, they get up and they work every morning. Mm -hmm. um, funny enough, Marilyn Shrewd comes to mind as someone with that sort of discipline and consistency. Um, I know you've you've worked with Marilyn in, in Bowling Green, but also like I did too. And I remember that as being like kind of an ultimate goal that it doesn't, it still hasn't yet worked for me, but, <laughs> but, uh, but I think that might be um, something yet to try.
there's there's like you said before there's always time to uh change your mind and stuff right mm-hmm. or try different things right things, exactly <laughs> this piece i'm going to write only by hand no engraving this piece i'm going to write only by working from the hours of 4 a.m to 6 a.m for two weeks <laughs> holy mean, shit i'm not ready for it either <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but i don't know if i can do that yeah um aaron the alarm went off a moment ago. Uh, I think our time is near. You have things okay. you have to do. And, uh, but I, I would love for us to, uh, I would love it to have you on here again at some point. And, and we could talk about all kinds of other stuff too, or any projects you have at that time. Um, that sounds great, Adam. It's been, it's such a thrill to talk to you. You're really good at this. So it's, it just makes it very easy. <laughs> Oh, cool. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's so much fun. And it's great. I mean, because, you know, we haven't seen or talked to each other in a long while, you know, like little things on social media and stuff, which is always nice. But it's this is this is so cool to, you know, to even to see you through a screen, you know? Yeah, it's great to see you too. I think it, I think I haven't seen you since you moved to Chicago. So yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's great. Um, and next time you're back around the city, look me up. I, I definitely will. Uh, and that, that goes both ways. Before we before we sign off here, um, do you have any projects you want to tell people about? Um, some social media ways they can reach out to you or follow you? Yeah, and... Sure. Yeah. Um, there's a, a number of projects coming up that I'm really excited about. On uh, December 2nd, speaking of Marilyn Trude, New Thread Quartet will perform a couple of Marilyn Trude's pieces at the Domena Center. And the, the second piece we're, we're doing, Evolution 5, will feature John Samp and um, on solo alto saxophone with the quartet. So uh, that is very special for me as I, um, as both of those professors are near and dear and they're both amazing artists in their own right. And uh, it'll be a little bit of a, a Bowling Green uh, party. So, um, and uh, also on the program, Lost Dog Ensemble, who is really uh, heading up a lot of this. Garth Sunderland is an alum of Bowling Green um, who directs Lost Dog, which is a fabulous mixed ensemble. has been doing amazing projects in New York for a long time. They're playing um, three pieces by uh, Marilyn, and then also a Momenta Quartet will perform a string quartet with Ariadne Greif, who's an amazing soprano. Uh, so that's not to be missed. That's December 2nd. And uh, again, it's at the Domena Center. Uh, there's also uh, Pope Obama has a show coming up, a royal premiere of Rick Burkhart's uh, newest piece for us called Wing, which is a kind of an epic 30-minute um, adventure. And if you know Rick Burkhart's music, um, then you know uh, it's going to be not only technically demanding, but just like kind of next level artistically um, out of this world. Uh, and if you don't know his music, check it out. Um, Rick is uh, one of the most um, interesting writers for all instruments, but um, has some very important work for saxophone. And um, that's the 11th of December. That'll happen at South Oxford Space in Brooklyn. And then a Hypercube has a, a show coming up on December 15th at Greenwich House, where we are collaborating with the uh, New York Women Composers uh, collaborative, or Collective, and we'll be performing uh, five different pieces from uh, composers that are um, New York women composers and uh, that have written some really fabulous pieces for, for us. And again, Hypercube is saxophone, electric guitar, piano, and percussion. So that's the 15th at Greenwich House. And all of these are up on the website, uh, AaronMRogers.com. And um, and you can follow me on social media. It's Aaron plays a sax on Instagram, E Rogers twenty three on Twitter, and uh, I got a Facebook page too. So um, I'll try to post as much as I can up there. But the website's really kind of where I try to consistently keep record of everything. So 
if you're in the New York area, check those check those events out. I know there's a lot going on right now, but hopefully you'll be able to see folks at some of them. Total. Oh my God. I wish I was the New York area for that. Cause that all sounds awesome. <laughs> oh my God. The, the, the BG Samp and shrewd one. That's, that's really sweet. That's a really, uh, a lovely thing right there. It's a really, it's going to be a really special night. Um, this is a 75th anniversary or 75th birthday celebration for Dr. Shrewd. So, oh, that's are, amazing. Yeah. And as you know, how important, um, shoot has been to, uh, the saxophone catalog. But really, I mean, her entire comp composition catalog is um, just not as well known as, it's, as it should be. And, you know, that often happens. You, you have a lifetime of work and it doesn't get appreciated until the end. But it, um, in her case, it's very much appreciated and has been performed by so many saxophonists and, and instrumentalists all over the world. So it's a great moment to celebrate her. Yeah, that's so true. That's, that's amazing. Uh, I'm glad to hear about that. Uh, well, Aaron, this, this has been such a fun conversation. So glad to have you on this. I really appreciate your time and, uh, and everything you've said. This is so cool. Uh, it's great to see you, Adam. Thanks for doing this.